Welcome to the Stress Nanny Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Miller, and today I'm delighted to have Maria Flores joining me. Maria has been a Montessori educator for over 26 years. She comes from San Antonio, Texas. She's got a history in other places and has had many, many adventures. Maria, thanks so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure, Lindsay. I'm so excited. One of the reasons I wanted to chat with Maria is because she has such a gift for tuning in to children. She's able to see them for where they are and for what they need, and she's able to communicate clearly with them in a way that allows them to feel very safe and heard. And she has a really incredible way of figuring out what's developmentally appropriate for a child on any given day, at any given time. And by developmentally appropriate, I mean what that child is actually capable of and making requests that reflect that child's ability and such that it will build confidence. Right, Maria? Well, thank you, Lindsay. Um, yes, it's one of my, I guess, a passion project. Definitely enjoy trying to figure out what's going on in those little minds. And I love watching you do that with your family too. It's not just the thing you do at school. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit about your family? Oh, I come from a big family. Um, uh, there's five siblings and then, um, I have, uh, four children and now we're expanding. I have three amazing grandchildren. Um, and they're just, they just bring such joy. Uh, we definitely enjoyed that part of, of parenting. I love watching you and Mill interact with them because you just tend to give your whole self to them. I mean, they, they are the thing that you focus on and pay attention to, and they just are so, it's just such a gift that you're able to be that present with them. Well, we, we certainly enjoy it. We're so grateful our children will let us go ahead and spend that time with them. Um, yes, they become all-encompassing. And it, oh, to be able to give that time, it is a gift. Uh, but it's, uh, talk about a gift that's given and received. Um, brings such, it truly does bring such joy. It's a good gig. It's <laughs> great. Talk to us a little bit. I know your educational background, but so that our listeners can get a feel for where your perspective comes from. It's informed by so many different uh, academic avenues. Give us a, give us a breakdown of where, where your perspective comes from. Well, um, I did always enjoy learning. Uh, So I did go to the university of Colorado um, and really enjoyed it. And if I ran into somebody, uh, one of my professors, who was just amazing, um, shared their passion. All of a sudden it was mine as well. So I ended up with several degrees. Um, so communications disorders, speech science, psychology, and I have my diploma in education. Um, at that point, I'm sure my parents were like, okay, no more great professors, move on. Um, <laughs> and then after that, after working um, in the public school system, then I also went out and got my monastery training so I have my certification there. Um, and since then, um, I continue uh, taking classes and learning right now. Technology is kind of rocking my world. So I've um, taken a lot of classes to see um, how that can be applied to the classroom for the students. 
So um, uh, anything that's going uh, that can promote my learning and learning from the children, I'm all about it. I love that. And they benefit immensely from it. Maria and I met uh, because my daughter Jessica was in her classroom and I was fortunate enough to convince the administration that Jessica really needed to be in her classroom. So I, <laughs> we've been, that. that was awesome. <laughs> we benefited from her perspective and I felt like every time I went and volunteered in the classroom, I walked away a better person with more respect for children. And I already have a great respect for children. So I learned so much just by sitting in the, sitting in the classroom and volunteering in small ways. So I'm excited that we can dive into a little bit of that today. Cause if you know me, you know, I love Montessori. If you know Maria, you know, she loves Montessori even more. So this is going to be a fantastic conversation around how the Montessori paradigm really helps us look at children from this place of developmentally appropriate expectation. As we dive in, Maria, will you just give us a breakdown of the different age ranges and kind of what Montessori focuses on or what the philosophy says are the key developmental tasks in each of those stages? Sure. Um, Maria Montessori, an amazing woman. Um, when she went through uh, developing her philosophy, she was working with more students that were like on the fringe of society. That Those were the ones that she was allowed to work with. And she saw it as their children and they're amazing. Let me go ahead and see what we can do for them. And really tapped into the developmental planes of the child, studied what they are capable of at those different ages. And what she had found was that there, um, she calls it her, her uh, planes of development, but it's, it's sensitive periods that she was looking at. And she saw some patterning happening in three-year cycles. So she saw it as um, zero to three, three to six, six to nine, nine to 12, all the way through adolescence. And each one of those planes of development have different categories, characteristics, characteristics, that's the word, um, that really stand out, um, that are very common. Um, As we know, every child is just so different. But there were certain things that we could have as expectations for those children. And if we just looked at those and kind of set that child up for um, those particular sensory periods, it's pretty amazing what can happen for them. So it's like opening up and setting them up for success. Um, So each age group has their different, um, I guess our special little characteristics. Um, And that's that's where the teachers, Montessori teacher, really focuses in on one of those planes of development. And we're really focusing on the child um, over that three-year span. That's great. I love it. One of the things that I was so enthusiastic about when I first toured a Montessori school was this idea that you stick with the same teacher for that three-year period so that the teacher can get to know you and that the teacher's attuned to the way you're moving through that sensitive period and the teacher can be sensitive to you and your needs and kind of map and design, encourage and invite you to different experiences that are going to, to benefit you for that stage. Um, I was also so impressed with, like you mentioned, the fact that the philosophy was built around children who were not thriving in uh, 
the socially accepted ways <laughs> at the time <laughs> it tended to be the kids who were struggling and that by watching the kids who were struggling, she was able to piece together this philosophy instead of just going straight to op optimal or ideal. She took a step back and instead of seeing their deficiencies, she saw their strengths and she saw their patterns and had a deep respect for them. And I feel like you do such a great job of that with children as well. Like you're not a, so often people can attune to a child's deficiencies or a way they're not measuring up, but we do them such a favor when we can see them in terms of their capacity and their potential for growth at any given stage. Exactly. It's, um, she did such a great job of empowering children, taking them from where they are, wherever, who they are, and empowering them. And then that, that road towards learning, it becomes intrinsic versus extrinsic. Somebody telling them what they have to learn instead of building it from within. And she really, in her studies and her, you know, the philosophy allows children be, to become in charge of their learning, um, feel like they're part of it. Um, and then, in, you know, that independence, leading them towards independence, which, as we know, is, is kind of uh, one of those things where you're like, yay, and oh, at the same time, um, <laughs> when your children are so confident that they go and, I don't know, travel around the world, um, you just kind of, it's like, yes, yay, and wait a minute, you know, uh, are you sure you want to? Yeah, um, that's pretty far. <laughs> yeah. um, and it just, it, it's amazing um, how we can really focus in on it. I mean, even those little things like the topics, um, studying the inner earth, who knew that was going to rock a seven-year-old, you know, world. They're like, oh, that is just the coolest thing ever. Um, to also knowing how to approach a seven-year-old and what's, what's important to them socially, emotionally. So yes, all big balance. And it's, uh, it's fun to see what can come out of that when you let it, when you appreciate it and let that kind of come to the surface. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to go through, will you go through with me real quick, just those different age ranges and kind of give us a feel for like from the ages of zero to six, some of the key things that children are in a sensitive period for? Sure. Let's look at it. We have um, the zero to six we look at um, here where um, it's really when that it's a basic personality formation that early on they are, they do have a little personality, um, but they're learning everything through the physical. So we have, they're touching everything. They're hearing, think of the five senses, overloading all those senses are pulling up all this information. Um, they're sensitive a period for acquiring language. So flood them with language. They should hear just a flow of a conversation. So yes, we have that baby, that three-month-old baby, right with you. Go ahead and have that conversation with someone so they can hear that flow of the voice. Any kind of that language um, is something we're looking at. Um, and then just organizations, mental order, um, respecting kids. Some kids are very, very sensitive to a schedule. They need to know in advance what is going to happen when, that predictability. Um, and if any kind of change, it can kind of set them off. Um, so it's just understanding that and making sure they're prepared for that. Um, but language acquisition, language development, um, senses, order, movement, um, 
and think again, little objects. So that's what we're looking at from that three to six, um, seven to 10, or like the six to 12. Now we're moving into abstract reasoning, really that can reason. <laughs> so then they're developing a sensitivity for imagination um, and their social interactions really start coming into play. Um, sensitive to um, their moral and justice, that whole sense of morality, <laughs> um, the right and wrong, um, they will follow the rules. Um, it's one of the things I love about lower elementary. Um, they're very rule driven. And if you say it, you better live it. Um, so it's, you know, that kind of thing. And they'll hold everybody accountable. Uh, your peer interaction changes. So um, from, from those younger students who their friendships kind of peak and, you know, it's like ebb and flow, um, they're trying to figure out who they are in lower elementary in that um, six to nine, they're really testing out um, how they interact together. So now we're playing together and we do have friendships and they're defining friendship. Um, and they, they make a lot of social errors. So there's a, a lot of guidance that happens there. Um, think of recess as a big you know, experiment. They're, they're in a lab and they are trying things out and getting results they don't expect, um, but they always get results. Um, so at that time, again, very, um, the social element is incredibly important. If we're looking in the classroom, we're making sure that, that student, each student has a social peer and an academic peer. Those have equal weight at that um, age. We have to be able to meet the needs of those. As they get older, that next step into adolescence, ooh, that one's a fun one. Um, they're really, you, you've got biological changes happening. Um, they're moving more towards learning um, more about the human personality. They're looking to themselves, but they're also applying that to others. Um, their sensitivity is more, again, to... Um, there's social justice, they have heroes, role models are so important. Um, personal dignity, there's, this is a time where it, it's kind of a challenge <laughs> to be around, but if we can just guide them with dignity, we're doing them a great service. And then of course, that sense of belonging, um, that social interaction at that point, they really need that to feel like they're part of a group. Are they, are, do they have their people? And if we have that, it seems like they're, um, you can see more a healthier person growing into it if they feel like they have, you know, their tribe. Um, and then, of course, after 18 plus, then we are really, that, that development, we're, we're talking about maturity. Yes, they really do mature um, and then become part of adult society. Um, and it's a launching. Um, they're really trying to figure out where they are within the world. So, um, and then development of individual interests at that point is very important for them. Thank you. That was a fantastic summary. <laughs> I love that you can just um, make that a seamless part of your day. One of the things we've talked about before is your propensity for asking why. So give us an example. You can approach children with such a level of curiosity as opposed to reactivity. So oftentimes in your classroom, I would see it where someone would ask something that would maybe be a surprise or a little out there, and your response would always just be complete calm, 
and just a very, like you said, dignified and patient answer. And it wasn't that it was anything off the wall, but it was just a curious question. Like, I would have never thought to ask that. Talk to me a little bit about both your ability to question what children are doing and then also your ability to field children's questions. Okay. All right. Well, that, that is the fun part. Man, are they unpredictable. Uh, when they come in, that is, you know, they, they do the why themselves. But if you start asking why, um, it's amazing what comes out. Their little, the process, the thought process they're going through. Um, but there's usually a reason for their behavior. <laughs> um, and uh, finding it out, sometimes it does take you on an, an unexpected journey. Um, but the rule in the classroom is if they ask a question um, and they get a response of no, you know, can I do this? And I'll say no. They automatically have to ask me why. That's the expected because um, there should be a why. If they're getting a no, there should be a why. I have to predicate that with just do that with me. Don't do it at home. Um, <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. Uh, but there, I mean, like little instances where um, a student will come over and, um, you know, can I go and, you know, go over, um, I want to go over to the, uh, I don't know, like to the library or something. Um, and it's, you know, it's like finding out the why, why is that going on? Um, to, uh, we had a more serious one where we had a student who, uh, she one of her best friends was sick that day and her line of logic was, you know, she's not here. And I wonder if she was in a car accident. If she was in a car accident. She's probably very hurt. If she got hurt. She's going to be in the hospital. If she's in the hospital. It must be very serious. And it was just this, this whole line of logic. And I just like, I said, I think she has a cold. She's just home. She's. And so with her, the rest of the day she spent, processing and she went home and told her parents or actually told a friend um my you know this child's in the hospital my best friend is in the hospital and I don't know if she's going to make it of course the community gets right into it there there's calls and there's you know parents are like are she okay can we call what can we do to help and I was like I I know where where this started (laughs) We're all okay. Let's just kind of step it down here. Um, but then sitting and talking to her the next day was saying, you know, how, why, <laughs> why did we go from here to there? That extreme. Um, and she it was completely logical. Um, she had an experience earlier in the summer where her grandmother was in a car accident and she, she went off to go to rehab. And so she didn't see her right so you know she was with her one day and the next day she's gone and she doesn't see her because and so it was like okay you know that was like but instead of going quite you know it's like I can understand where you're going let's go ahead and and get some information first (laughs) before we go in and set off these alarms I said we we react and so I explained to her I said the kind of the reactions that were set into motion and I said you know, I just need you to understand what happened. She's like, oh no, you know what this means? And I was like, but she's, I'm in trouble now. She goes, you know, I'll tell my parents and you know what that means? I will be grounded. Oh. And I'm 
Like she has, do you know what grounded means? And I was like, tell me, what does grounded mean? She has, you lose all your rights and privileges for at least two weeks, two weeks, no privilege. And it's just in, you know, and I just said, you know, we do that as parents because we want you to learn your lesson. So we just want you to understand, really kind of emphasize it. Do you feel like you've learned your lesson? Well, she goes, well, yeah, I know. Now I know. I said, why don't you start with that with your, I said, would you like me to talk to your parents? She goes, no, I want to talk to them. And I'm thinking, okay, well, when are we going to have this conversation? (laughs) And amazingly, she, you know, I I gave her, I said, you know, I'll give you till six. (laughs) Um, But she did. And and then when I talked with mom later, you know, I, you know, I said she was concerned about being grounded and she started laughing. She goes, where did that come from? She goes, I've never talked to her about being grounded. She goes, you know, occasionally there's an, you know, like these empty threats or whatever. And she has this whole thing, but it's just, you know, her why that motivation, who knows where she picks it up, but it certainly makes for an interesting day, but spending that time and realizing that it, it wasn't, she wasn't out for mischief, she was, that was where she was processing from. Um, And that, I think, more than anything, it's figuring out, you need to spend the time with the why to decide if it's mischief or mayhem. (laughs) You know, the seven-year-old Yeah, or just like a mental paradigm that is still developing and doesn't quite have all the pieces that it needs to fit him in, in the way that they actually go. Exactly. And they don't always have a why, or an answer to the why. So, you know, I had a student who took one of my pencils and impaled it in the ceiling. <laughs> he was like, oh, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> and was horrified, was just mortified. And I'm thinking, that's pretty amazing. I don't know if I could impale <laughs> that ceiling up there. But the, the why, you know, and yeah. he didn't, he didn't have a why. Uh, I just, and so I'm like, okay, he's, he's seven. And, you know, there was no logic behind it. And yes, he saw it as, and, and at first he told me, because it was an accident. <laughs> I don't really see it as an accident. He goes, I know. And that makes it even worse. I should have never told you it was an accident. And now it's even worse. And I was like, <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, there wasn't the logical reason behind that other than, you know, he's seven. So, um, but for the most part, if you just give yourself an opportunity to find out a why, um, one, you're always entertained, but two, really kind of helps that child start communicating as well, which is what's going on. What is that thought process? Um, And it's enlightening to see that. um, And it's also good for them. So they can start um, explaining themselves, explaining their thought process. And it really, um, again, helps us to legitimize their thought processes and, and give them permission to, to think and hopefully with some logic as it goes yeah. along. Well, and that's, again, one of the things I remember from being in the classroom was how you would you would open it up, especially if there was something new going on or like a field trip type experience or a different out of routine, you would just open up the, so all I can envision all the kids sitting around the rug and you were having your community time and you would ask if there were any questions. 
And there were some of the most interesting questions that would arise (laughs) based on people's expectations or awareness about what a bus looked like or how, what, where their lunch was going to be. But I love (laughs) that you could validate their concerns by just creating the space for them to voice them, to vocalize like, Hey, I, I, I've never done this before. I don't know. And I know as an adult, I frequently will forget what it's like to be a kid doing something for the first time. Can you speak to that? Like, what are some of the questions you get or what are some of the, the things that come up when you open up conversations like that for kids, create that space for them to just ask what they wonder about? And it, yes, we do. And it's, again, you always get the most unusual questions. Um, and and this, yes. And then developing stories, but just to reassure them, yes, it's different. Um, we're going to totally break a routine. And when you do that, you really do, the more they understand, the less worry, um, and anxiety that we have, um, and walking through, it's well worth it. So we do the lock-in once a year and it's a big event. It's an all day event and the kids get to spend the night as well. Um, and we open that up for our you know, first, second, third years. They can spend that and we sleep in the classroom. Um, the first year we did that, we thought for sure we would just have the third year students, you know, being able, ready to spend the night. And it turns out we, we have almost 100% participation in a sleepover. Um, but largely due to the fact that we um, do it in the classroom, a place that they're very comfortable in. And so questions come up about, you know, um, the questions on how does that work to spend the night? And we have, you know, like, can we sleep in, we have sleeping bags and can I bring um, a a stuffed animal? Can I bring something to snuggle with? And usually what happens is they at first are like, they'll laugh. Oh, you want to bring a, you know, a stuffed animal. You want to bring a blankie. Um, And then we go into the explanation of, I use one of my children as an explanation. She has taken her, our little blanket with her from the time she was so little to it, it also went to the lock-in. So it, it went to school and then it went through middle school with her and she took it on trips with her in high school and was took it. She took it with her when she was in, uh, when she went to college. And, you know, I said, I bet right now it's in her room. I said, that same little blanket has gone all the time. I said, it's a comfort to her. It's wonderful. Um, and it's, you know, if it brings her comfort, it works for me. It's, it's, it's great. So does anyone else have anything that they, you know, find comforting that they like to have at night? And then all of a sudden it's, you know, all of them. Oh, I have mine. <laughs> so it's, it's again, legitimizing those things. Um, because they fear it's, it's more fear, I guess, fear-based where they're, um, they're concerned someone's going to laugh at, or, you know, that's what I did when I was a baby or it just, but if you can just kind of rationalize some of those fears, um, but we have questions about, you know, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? You know, what if, what if I want to call my mom and um, what if I decide in the middle of the night and, and it's just going through and saying, you know what, we, we can, we can call, you know, and well, shoot with phones and everything we can do all of that. We can FaceTime. Uh, just, and it, it helps reassure them. Um, so even when it's just part of the routine of the day, um, if you listen to some of the concerns, those worries, it certainly helps bring down that anxiety. Um, and then increases that comfort level with asking those, 
you know, those questions, but yes, we get lots and lots of questions. I love how you said that. And I think that that's a perfect place to kind of wrap up how you said the, it, it encourages them to ask, to vocalize and to realize it's okay. And then I've also watched them like step off of that rug with a different level of independence and ownership of their own experience because no longer are they dependent on the adult for like the timeline and the framework and the information, but they've now had the opportunity to accumulate all that they needed in order to feel like you said, comfortable, safe, and be able to anticipate. And so they can move forward with a different level of confidence than they could if they were just anxious because they didn't have any idea and were too nervous to ask. And I know so often as adults, it can be, you know, we, it's just a normal thing, but it can be challenging to put ourselves in that mindset. And instead of just kind of pushing aside the worry or telling them not to worry about it, instead to just let them vocalize it and then normalize it, like you said. What do you think are the key things that parents can do like to develop that practice in their lives? Like as parents, how can we cultivate that atmosphere of curiosity for our kids and welcome their questions more? It is it's opening that door of communication. So ask the questions um, and uh, just have that conversation and then make it part of your routine, you know, and, and be honest with them too. Tell them, I'm going to keep asking you questions until I'm satisfied with an answer. So those one, one word answers just means I'm going to ask you that many more questions. Um, it's just, it's again, um, telling it's worth your time. Um, you are interested. You're generally interested in them. Uh, would be to me. It's like everyone is is very different, but there's some common things. Children want to be recognized as being as an individual. Um, they have some value that you value what they're what they're doing, um, and just wallow in it. Enjoy it. Um, we only get them for a short time, so yeah, go ahead. Take advantage of that that time. But pursue the questions, ask the whys, turn it right around on them um, to, to get that information. It's, it's, it's there. They will share. Um, to see that confidence and that independence grow, to be part of that, you know, it just, it, that makes it amazing um, in and of itself. But I would say, yes, just communicate and let them know how much you care about them. I love that so much. Thank you. I wish everyone could just catch a glimpse of what that looks like because I know my own parenting was like deeply impacted by watching those conversations and just being able to see what that looks like. And then to, to know that the, the independence and the confidence and the peace of mind that comes from the kids as a result is, is really legitimate and has such an impact on their, their well-being. And it does make the journey of parenting and teaching that much more authentic and also insightful, right? I mean, the things you realize when you start asking questions, like you said, it's, it's pretty interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so grateful we could have this conversation. Lindsay, I learned so much from you. This is a great avenue to, to talk and it, it, it does really does take a village. This is a great avenue to reach so many. So thank you for doing this. Thank you.